We are talking to Angus McNelly. He is an honorary research fellow, uh, editor at Alternatus, uh, and a professor at the School of Politics and International Relations at Queen Mary University of London. Uh, Angus, thanks for talking to us. I appreciate your time. Thank you for having me on. So we wanted to start. We wanted to start the conversation with the uh, with how how it was that labor and social movements in Bolivia, how they operated in in, in the political context and and um, before the election of the MAS government. Uh, we'll be talking about that and their relationship to the government of uh, the movement to socialism in Bolivia and, uh, and, and further there. But, but first, I just wanted to um, kind of get an understanding of what it was like for the labor and social movements, and specifically the labor movement, before the election of Morales in 2005. So if you could give us kind of that background. So I think the, the first thing to say about Bolivia is it's a really heterogeneous, diverse country, and it historically has a really weak state. So civil society has been a really, really important part of the direction historically that the country's taken, particularly after the 1952 revolution, where you saw a coalition of working class groups, indigenous groups, and the middle classes overthrow the government and set up a what was called a national revolutionary government. Um, and there were two poles to that government. Um, the first was made up of middle-class intellectuals, but importantly, the, the labor movement made up the second pole of this, they call it the National Revolutionary State, which went from 1952 until the implementation of neoliberalism in 1985. And this is because Bolivia had basically the strongest Trotskyist movement of anywhere in the world. So Trotskyism arrived by the railways, start of the 20th century, and um, quickly became the kind of ideological kind of centerpiece to the labor movement, particularly in the mines. So Bolivia is a country where tin mining was an important part of their history, and they used to read marks down the mines. And they were super radical, um, were able, even during the military dictatorships of the 60s and 70s, to kind of play an important part politically and we're an import, we're kind of played a salient role in the struggles against um, the implementation of neoliberalism. So the labor was widely defeated across Latin America in the 1980s, but in Bolivia, this was particularly the case and the Central Obrera Boliviana, which is the labor central, um, suffered huge defeats um, in the 1980s, particularly in Calamarca, um, where they, that was that kind of last hurrah um, which was around the same time that the British miners were defeated. However, they were displaced um, by an important rising indigenous movement. Um, Bolivia is a country where over half of the population, it, it's difficult to say how many percentage-wise are indigenous or not, because the way that it's measured changes all the time. Um, but over half of the country is indigenous. And there has been a really, really important um, indigenous movement from the 1960s onwards. Um, and this originally wasn't an identity politics driven movement. It was a class based, came out of a kind of radicalization of the peasant movement and was based in kind of syndicalist traditions. So the, um, the Sisutsube, which is the peasants union, was joined to the Central Obrero Boliviana, the, the COP. Um, and the most radical part of this peasant movement from the 1980s onwards was the coca growers. 
the cocoleros. Because when people left the mines, um, as they were privatized and closed down um, after 1985, people had nowhere to go. There was no way to make money. And so people left the mines and went to the Chapari, which is where they grow cocoa. So they brought this radical kind of like Trotskyist tradition and then used it to organize these peasant movements. Um, so the Cocoleros became the kind of radical heart of the peasant movement. And in the 1990s, there was this debate that was like, should we try and build a state within the states? So like the Zabatistas in Mexico, or should we build a political instrument and try and state, take state power? And they opted for the latter and the movement towards socialism on the mass comes is the party that they formed which comes from the Cocoleros, which is why Evo Morales was the head of the six federations of the tropics of Cochabamba, um, which is the Cocoleros um, confederations. In the 1990s, neoliberalism destroyed Bolivia's economy, Bolivia's um, particularly kind of um, the social fabric of the country, um, and the, the deleterious effects that this had exploded um, during the late 1990s with the fiscal crisis of the state, which led to movements for initially against the privatization of water, but also against land tenure, against um, trying to stop the cultivation of coca, and most famously in 2003, against the, against the um, exportation of gas through Chilean seaports. Okay, And these peasant movements were really, really important in the, being the organizational base of this cycle of social movements. So interestingly was the labor movement, which kind of re-emerged during this period of struggle and actually formed part of the kind of like ideological apparatus that helped direct these social movements in the months running up to the October 2003 gas war. So you have a period of five years from 2000 to 2005, which laid the foundation for Evo Morales' government, where you had large sections of civil society which were mobilized, a radical set of demands which were largely centered on the nationalization of hydrocarbons and a constituent assembly to rewrite the constitution that formed the base of um, the initial Morales years. And so Morales kind of rode to power off the back of this social movement radicalism and found himself once in power at the head of a country which was already mobilized. Um, and so in that sense, like, yes, he came to power in a strong position, but the period before him, this five-year period of so-called social movement activism, really shaped kind of politically where he could go in the first couple of years of his tenure. Right. I, I noticed in, in uh, your, the latest article that you wrote that it, it seemed like there was a lot more movement in the first five years um, than there was in the fir- in, in the the latter uh, the latter portion of his tenure, um, if even if for no other reason than the fact that they did a lot of the things that the social and labor movements were um, uh, were asking for. If I, I was wondering if you could kind of tease out the difference um, and and the interplay for us between the labor movements on the one hand and the social movements on the other. Um, because, you know, here, here in America, the labor movement has really been defanged, especially, or, or, or especially in places here like Alabama. Um, we, you know, we represent n- nearly one in 10 workers here in Alabama, but even, even those one in 10 workers are, um, you know, 
we're certainly not organized on a political basis, even if we're organized um, in our workplaces for, uh, you know, for, for gains on the job, we are definitely not organized to, to put forward, a, you know, political candidates or push political candidates over the top. We're very heterogeneous as far as our political beliefs here in Alabama. And um, there's not a lot of interplay between us and other social movements. I, I think, you know, I think for the worse, but uh, what is the, the relationship between those two movements and, and you know, um, before and after the election of Evo Morales in 2005? So it, it depends on which social movements you're talking about. Um, so as I said before, this is Sutsube or the Peasants Union is actually a part of the COP. Um, so you have a very close relationship between um, this peasants union and, and the labor movement. And the peasants union has is predominantly the way in which rural communities organize themselves in the lowland valleys of Cochabamba, which is um, where cocoa is growing, but it's also historically where um, lots of agricultures are. So the food that was grown for the mines, the silver mines that the Spanish run, from the 16th century onwards, that food was grown in Cochabamba. Um, and then the areas around the lake, um, Lago Titicaca, um, also have peasant unions and this union structure. Um, it gets more complicated as you go further down the Andes because you have what is called an IU, which is a kind of um, socio-political social unit that um, the Aymaras use. So in some communities, they call themselves IUs now because of the recognition of indigenous groups by governments under neoliberalism. Some of them call themselves peasant unions. They're exactly the same in terms of their day-to-day -day functioning. It's that they choose which one to call themselves um, at different times in order to have different access um, to the state. There have been moments where historically there have been moments of tension between the labor movement and um, the indigenous movement. But what you have to remember is Bolivia is a really indigenous country. All of the miners are poor. All of the working class people are basically indigenous people. So the miners um, come from and have family in rural communities. And so historically, there has always been an overlap between the mining community, who are the vanguard of um, the Bolivian working class, and indigenous communities, particularly um, in Oruro and Potosi, which is where all of the tin mining and silver mining happened. Um, so there is this massive overlap between the two. Where it gets more complicated is where, if we look at the lowland movement, um, so this kind of, if we roughly split the indigenous movement into two broad types, three broad types. Firstly, you've got the peasant movement, which is linked to the labor movement. But, and then you've got the highlands indigenous movement, which is in the Andes that have this, based around this socio-political um, unit of the Ayu. And then the lowland movement, which are headed by the Guarani, um, but the, there are much more ethnically diverse um, and have a very, very different conception about the world um, and far less numerous, far less densely populated, and lots of them still live in very, very remote areas um, that haven't been integrated into colonial um, systems of food production in the same way, um, roughly speaking. Um, so there have been moments, and you see this in particular with the demand for the nationalization of gas, which was central to highland indigenous movements and the work 
and the, the labor movement really going against the lowland movement in certain in instances because all of the gas is in the lowlands. So the people who are displaced and lose their territory or have their rivers polluted by hydrocarbon extraction are members of the lowland movement. Um, and so this tension between kind of different worldviews, different ideas about what you should do with resources really comes out if we kind of look at it. And this is a kind of a broad brass picture of the different um, social movements you find in Bolivia. But just to illustrate that there are moments where there are real tensions behind kind of like what they're all trying to do. Uh, and these tensions you can see in the government of Evo Morales. Right, right. And, oh. and the, you mentioned that the, the Peasants' Union was part of the COB, and the COB is, is again, uh, uh, we can think of that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but, but I think of that as kind of like the AFL-CIO of, uh, of Bolivia. Obviously, you know, the COB is, is more, you know, radical and more militant than the AFL-CIO, but, but I think that, that can kind of help us put it into context uh, for, you know, our American audience. Uh, so, so when we're talking about the, these these independent groups, what kind of percentage for the listeners are we talking about? You know, of the of each kind of like I mean, a, a rough estimation of each group, and then that the combination of those groups compared to the remainder of the population. That 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 is a really good question. Um, I can sketch out the, and I think it's actually useful to sketch out the Bolivian, the, the Bolivian working classes um, who've changed in composition um, under neoliberalism, where you had the size of the working classes increase by 50% in five years, um, as particularly women, but also people from the countryside were drawn into informal work. Um, and you see a, in the 1980s and 1990s, people who are drawn into um, wage labor, there aren't any formalized work. All of the miners, 27,000 miners, lose their jobs. Um, there are no formal jobs, and so everybody goes and works in commerce or services, which are informal. The COB does not represent most of these sectors. So the COB still has a big problem in that it doesn't represent most of Bolivians, Bolivia's working classes. Um, and the weight that it holds within society is still because it symbolically is an important part of Bolivian yeah. civil society, rather than it represents most of the workers. Um, if you look at where kind of the dynamism within the Bolivian economy is, it's hydrocarbons, but it's been really difficult for the COB to mobilize gas workers, partly because of the way in which hydrocarbons was... Um, privatized in the 1990s, where they fragmented the production and, and into kind of different um, company, companies upstream and downstream, which meant that kind of like to build solidarity was really difficult. You only had a very, very small number of workers actually employed in, um, in gas, and there wasn't the same history of radicalism. And so you have a disconnect where the most radical sector of the working classes is still the miners, but they have been under attack since the 1980s. The, mine, the state mines that there are still open, one only is a case in point, um, lose money and are there for political reasons. The ones that do make money are private, and most miners are cooperative miners who aren't represented by the COB anyway. Um, and so you have this situation where the miners are really fragmented and, and at times fight one another. 
And you see this in 2007 when Wanuni is um, nationalized after a fight between the employee, formalized employees of the, the company, the mining company, and cooperative miners, um, which kills 30 people because they're fighting with dynamite because all miners in Bolivia have dynamite. Um, to kind of the battles over the new, the new mining law, it was passed in 2013, where the cooperative miners were really pushing to have, be able to have virus, the partnerships with foreign firms. And the yeah. state didn't want that. And the state miners were saying, no, we should nationalize everything. And the cooperatives are no, because we're going to lose money. So you have this situation where, like, historically, the vanguard of the working classes is fragmented and fighting one another. The, the people who actually make money, um, whether it be it for the state through fiscal resources or for, for, for private capital, have no history of labor organizing and are fragmented because of the way in which their sector is, is organized, which means that you have a very, very weak um, labor organization. And then on top of that, something, it depends on the estimates, but between 60 and 80% of Bolivians are informal, informally employed anyway, and so you're not represented by the COP. So this is a moment where like the COP is historically quite weak. Yeah. Um, to certain sections of um, the peasant movement, particularly the cocoleros, who continue to be important because they can that sector continues to absorb surplus labor populations who can't find work anywhere else. And coca, because it can be grown all year round, you can have four harvests a year, um, you can make more money than other cash crops. Um, I'm not saying that everybody who works in the Chapari is a narcotraficante, or, or, but they're all involved in the drugs trade. They're peasants, but what they yeah. make is the raw ingredient for cocaine. Yeah. Um, and this is an important part of the Bolivian economy because there's no other work for these people to do. And that's the way to survive. And it's actually this tacit kind of agreement between the Evo Morales government, who obviously is led by a coca grower, um, and the rest of society saying, well, this has to continue because it's political suicide to address it because you need to kind of then redress kind of why do we have a surplus population which is so big it can't be absorbed? And, and how, what do you need to do in order to, to, to kind of think about what needs to happen to try and reintegrate this, uh, this surplus population into um, society? And the Americans suggested that they grow avocados and they were, well, you make a tenth of the price. This is yeah. not going to work. Um, which is why no neoliberal government has an answer to this question, um, which is really interesting. And the mass have been actually quite successful in having these agreements where they are allowed to grow coca, and, but they've limited the number of hectares they're allowed to grow. And they've actually been more successful than their neighbours who've had a very militarised approach to coca growing in order to contain it. So this is an important part of the story that we're telling because these coca growers are still like the backbone of the peasant yeah. and they're, they're the backbone of the of the mass they're the, the in bolivia they talk about um the mass having an organic relationship with social movements what they mean is this relationship isn't constructed through alliances it's not constructed through clientelism or, or corporativism it's a relationship that comes from the fact that these two organizations are fused. They're one and the same, basically. Um, you can say this about the Cocaleros, and you can say this about the Susutsube because the, the Cocaleros are part of the Susutsube, and you can say it because 
of the mass because the mass is their political instrument. You cannot say this about any other of the social movements that were seen as the base of, of Morales' government. And this includes the COP. So the COP have a quite kind of fractious relationship with the mass. Sometimes they are in alliance, sometimes they're against them. It's not something which is easy. Um, and it's been actually one of these kind of debates within the labor movement um, when I was there in 2016, 2017, was should we follow our historical um, relationship with the state, which is we need independence of the working classes. The COB is a counterbalance to government. So our job is to fight for the good of the working classes through holding the government to account, um, be it a military dictatorship or, or, or an allied kind of nominally socialist government. Or on the other side of saying, look, we're historically weak. We need to look after the COB, which means that we can't fight the government. We have to enter into alliance and we have to use the fact that this is a historically quite friendly moment and get what we can while we can. Um, and th this was like quite contentious. Um, and while I was there, th this relationship was, was um, breaking up because they had been in alliance since November 2013. And they actually broke that alliance while I was there. And I was in some of the meetings where they discussed why they were going to break it. So you, uh, you said um, in a couple places, this is a historically weak moment for the COB. Um, when you say this, do you mean today, 2020, or do you mean 2005 when Morales was elected? I think sadly the COB is weaker than it's ever been. Um, I, I went back last summer, um, northern summer, so June, July um, 2019. And I, the idea behind me going back was I wanted to disseminate some of my findings with people in the labor movement to be like, look, this is what I found out. This is what I think about what has happened. Do with it what you will. Um, but knowing people in the Bolivian labor movement, the, my friends in the labor movement, they're really well read. They're really sharp like been in reading groups with them they're, they're good people um sadly everybody that i knew <laughs> had been um, expelled and purged when i was there because it was in the run-up to the 2019 elections and they were like well no we needed to get our house in order everybody's with the mats now when uh, you say expelled and purged you mean from the movement no, my friend got fired. <laughs> um, quite literally, she, the, she worked for the National Healthcare Service, and so they were like, how do we get rid of her? Oh, uh, wow. I know what we can do. If we make her lose her job, then she can't be a part of the union anymore, which means that she can't be a, a, a leader. So the, word, like, the mass were quite authoritarian in the way that they ran their, their party ranks. And I think you have to understand that the Morales comes from a tradition in the Cocaleros, and you see it in the labor movement beforehand as well. Like you, it's very hierarchical and you hold your position on being a good orator and seen as being like charismatic and a good leader. It's the same you, here. Yeah. Yeah. But you it's battle people in, in debates and there were a couple of people who were seen as rivals to him, Alejo Veliz and um, Felipe Quispe in the late 1990s and early 2000s. And not only when they came up against him did they lose, but he made sure that they left politics. 
Um, so, I mean, he does come from this history of organizing where you keep your house in order. Um, and there's a Latin American historical tradition within, within movements that externally, particularly at times where you think you're going to come up and stress, i.e. elections, you have a united front, nobody says a word. Um, and the way that they did that before I got there was they decided that they were going to purge all the dissident voices. The problem that they had um, was to do with the way that they've managed social movements, or the mass government had managed social movements um, under Abe Morales' government. So they spent the first term taking the radical demands of social movements and trying to implement them, but implementing them through a liberal state and in a way that would keep their radical appearance without actually shaking anything up. So you had the nationalization of gas that did renegotiate contracts, which meant that the government was able to gain a larger slice of hydrocarbons rents. But in terms of ownership, Petrobras and Repsol kept most of their um, gas fields. They actually increased their share of hydrocarbons production in Bolivia. This is not a nationalization on anyone's book, but it looks like one. Same, similarly with the Constituent Assembly, the way that the Constituent Assembly was organized um, as firstly um, with a liberal elections for all of the representatives who had to participate as a member of the party, um, two thirds voting um, needed for all of the proposals. All of this was set up in order to take kind of different forms of political organization and more radical ideas and put them through this liberal machine meant it came out the other end with a kind of um, a, a compromised um, outcome, shall we say. And as you know, it's really difficult to mobilize people if you're mobilizing around the nationalization of, of hydrocarbons and a constituent assembly, both of those things have happened. You can't mobilize people after that. And you can't say, oh, no, we didn't like that. Let's go back and do it again. This is not going to get people organized, mobilized. Um, and so what started to happen was, was that you had the two main kind of organizing frames that movements had that were then taken away from them. You had leaderships who were offered initially positions in kind of the mass cabinets. Um, but then later on, just mid-level bureaucracy, like you go and you work for a, a government organization, a government department in the area that you're interested in. And so you may be able to have some input on a day-to-day -day level with um, the implementation of policy. But as a movement, you've just cut off the, the heads of these organizations. And... The, what has happened, what I, I saw happening was that whereas before you had the social movements and then there was a gap and then there was a state, now you have the social movements and then, or under the Morales years, you had the social movements and then and their leaders and the government in like one little bubble and then a massive gap and then you had the rank and file. And the rank and file couldn't get to their leadership. And so you had these like headless, headless kind of uh, movements that stopped moving. So you had these organizations that became empty shells um, as the activists kind of like all of the energy dissipated. Um, there were some rumblings, like moments of sparks where you could see something was, there was massive discontent. 
and they kind of like congealed around certain issues. Um, so you saw that with um, proposed um, eliminations of fuel subsidies at the end of 2010, and the construction of a highway through one of the national parks, the Titneys, um, which really undermined the government's support um, among, particularly like lowland groups, but helped build uh, coalitions between lowland groups and um, sections of uh, the urban middle classes and the aspirational working classes um, who started to see themselves as or their children university university educated worthy of professional jobs and and so they kind of align themselves um, less with the kind of extractive agenda of the mass more with kind of like the 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 environmental um, agenda of of the Lola movement and, and the environmental movement, which has been quite elitist up until now. Um, and so when in 2019, I came back and I saw all my friends had gone from the COP, I was thinking, well, what's left? So all of the activists I knew who were like good, who had like good support amongst the people that they represented, they'd all been replaced by kind of people aligned with the government who didn't have support amongst their organizations. So when the coup happens, you see this really clearly on the 10th of November, as the military, just before the military says to Morales, you need to step down, the COP comes out and says, you need to step down. <laughs> So the COB ends up supporting the coup because they're historically weak and they spent the last like couple of weeks flip-flopping around while there's kind of like the whole country's um, up in flames. And they don't have the ability to mobilize people in support of the government. They don't have ability to mobilize people against kind of fascist forces who are mounting in the right. And by the time that Evo's gone and the new president, Janine Agnes, comes into power wielding a Bible um, with flanked by um, members of the far right, members of the COP are thinking now, well, we've made a mistake. And a week yeah. later, we made a mistake. This is not good enough. But it's a, it's a symptom of the fact that it's become an empty shell or it had become an empty shell. And it doesn't represent its constituents. And it is an, unable to do the one thing that the COB needs to do in order to have power, and that is mobilize the working classes. Yeah. Now, do you think that, um, now, now my understanding, and obviously as a kind of lay English reader of Bolivian news, there's not a whole lot of English language news coming out of Bolivia, um, and then it's hard to kind of, um, pull out the threads that are important, but my reading of it has been that the labor movement has been um, pretty central to the resistance uh, uh, to the coup government. Um, now, this, this I've been reading these things more lately over the last, you know, over the last several months where what you were talking about when they, uh, you know, the COB initially supported the coup, um, the, in encouraging Morales to step down. Um, but over the last several months, my understanding is that there have been, they've been blockading, uh, blockading roads. There's been general strikes. There has been lots of mass militant action on the part of labor unions and social movements in Bolivia. Uh, do you see that? Can, what 
what does that mean kind of for the strength of the Cobb and these other labor, labor and social movements? And do you see that as indicative of a rise or is this something of a fluke or am I just misreading the, the situation? Bolivia is a place where you always have people on the streets. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a place of protest. And this is partly symptomatic of you have a state which cannot properly govern the country and a democratic system which sits really, really uncomfortably on top of the heterogeneous society that I outlined before. Um, so, so you always have politics that, that, that spreads out onto the street. What is interesting is if you go back to last November, so after Eva Morales has fell, you had these moments of spontaneity. And this, in Bolivian history, you have moments which are explosive, which aren't managed by um, organizations or particular movements that they start to move. And so you have organizations which are carried off the back of these spontaneous kind of moments. Um, and what you start to see when Morales leaves and um, the, the Anya's government comes in burning the Whitpala, which is the indigenous flag, is people get really angry. And so you have these mass kind of like mobilizations against this government in El Alto, which is a largely Aymara city which sits above La Paz. Um, and they start marching through the streets calling for a civil war. Um, this isn't organized by anyone in particular, much less the, the mass political party. They have no power to control this. Um, but it, because it's spontaneous and because you don't have the organizational structures, they can't really mount an effective, sustained moment of pressure. And what you, start, what you see is the state come in and use um, a significant amount of violence, which kills dozens of people. But whereas in 2003, where people are mobilized, that violence was the spark that lit the whole powder keg and got rid of the president. This time you didn't have the social organizational structure um, in order to kind of resist what was going on. In the end, it kind of dampened those moments of resistance. Um, so same in um, the coke growing region where you had the military go and use really kind of violent lethal force against um, cocaleros or the cocoa growers who were mobilizing in favor of Morales. And yes, this has become a really important uh, rallying cry now and in the run up to the elections, these human rights abuses. But at the time it, it didn't kind of, whereas before it would have um, spurred movements on and kind of like in, in enlivened and enlarged uh, moments of action. In this period of time, you see the opposite, whereas this violence has been, was effective for a short period of time of curtailing these kind of moments of uh, kind of spontaneous action. So it sounds to me like you said the Cobb uh, had a hand in that, but it looks like as the mines have difficulties or have continued to have difficulties that the cob slowly and slowly loses uh you know the power that it once wielded if it did you know have a strong amount of power and it, it sounded like they're going to the cocoleros as far as industry goes it don't sound to me like there's a lot of opportunity it i mean I'm, you know, I'm going to show my ignorance here and say that Bolivia, like most of the other South American countries, uh, 
you know, have agriculture and petroleum, uh, and that's about it. So, uh, where do you, where do you, where do they go from this point? Uh, because I can, yeah, and then I guess the second part of that question would be, as those folks move into the Cocaleros, are they seeing the type of violence uh, that's inflicted upon them through U.S. imperialism, like what we see in other South American countries trying to so-called step out the drug trade? Uh, I, I real because I I'm more interested in the people and how how you get these people into a better quality of life and maybe under a more liberal government in the U.S., you don't see quite that much uh, overreach into the Bolivia, but I, I, don't, I don't see it ever stopping. And it's like you take away all of their ability, you know, or most of their ability as they transition out of these uh, uh, more, la uh, more traditional uh, working roles in mines and things like that into the fields, which is, I would assume, comes extremely natural to them. The, the question of U.S. Imperialism, imperialism is really important. Um, and it's, it's interesting because liberal government, conservative government, I mean, there are differences between, um, particularly like in the 1980s, um, yeah, the Republicans mounted an effective kind of war of terror on um, Central America. Um, but the war on drugs in the 1990s, yes, it started under Reagan, um, but it was continued with kind of vigor under under Clinton. Um, and what changed things was um, Morales coming into power and having a new approach to drugs um and the the drugs trade in bolivia is run by unions you don't really have cartels um uh, in the okay. same way that you have in brazil or colombia um so the unions themselves sort out all of the disputes in their own meetings and as far as i understand it's this unwritten rule where everybody knows you're talking about drugs but it's not explicitly said about drugs. And when a decision has been made in the, in the union meeting, you don't go back against it because they can take your land away. And yep. these people are primarily peasants and their involvement in the indirect trade is possibly to make the paste, which is like the first step of making cocaine and possibly to transport it to other places. But they never, cocaine is not really made in Bolivia. They make the paste and then they export. Um, and because of this strong union control, it means you don't have the same level of violence that you have in other parts of Latin America. I mean, Bolivia is, yes, it's very poor, but in comparison to its neighbors, it just doesn't have the same levels of violence. And this is partly because it has very, very strong and civil society organizations, which play a large part in organizing people's everyday lives. So the COB, it doesn't have the structural power that it once had. And it's, as far as I can work out, unless things change with the structure of um, the hydrocarbon sector, um, 
I don't think that the COG is going to have massive structural power again. What it does have is associational power, the ability to bring sections of the working classes together and a huge historic importance. So if you read the, the Bolivian newspapers, the COB is in, people say the COB is unimportant, yet it's in the newspaper every day. And this was what led me to start writing about the COB because I was like, hang on a minute, how is this organization unimportant? Nobody in English had written about it for years um, before I, I wrote about it a couple of years ago. And I was like, well, why? This is one of the principal organizations. It's always in the news. You have people who have can have meetings with government officials. Um, and there are people talk about what's going on in the COB. And if the COB's marching, they have sticks of dynamite, you know they're marching. Um, so there is this kind of still this historic weight that the COB pulls. Um, and still, if you look at the last year, I, I don't think they were leading the protests against the um, the Anya's government, the interim government. But they were an important kind of visible um, kind of lightning rod for international solidarity, for, for, for other kind of labor movements across the world to, to understand what's going on, but also kind of a rallying cry around which people can, can come. Uh, if you know the COB's gonna be there, they have a history of marching with other people. And, my favorite story about the COP, and this sums up, they had a, an amazing leader for 30 years, a guy called Juan Lechín, um, who was Minister of Mines in this National Revolutionary Government in the 1950s that I was talking about before. And the British labor movement gave the COP a million pounds in the early 80s, like 81 or 82 to build themselves a new social seat, so a, a union-like headquarters in La Paz. Um, and then, I think it must have been 82, 83, um, because the British mine strike was 84, and the COB didn't spend a penny and gave all of it to the solidarity funds back to the British miners when they went on strike. Wow. And That's beautiful. Like, that what gets me? Because like the Bolivian miners have nothing. And then a couple of years ago, the same thing happened to them. But such was their sense of solidarity that they were like, well, obviously we're not spending a penny on this. It doesn't matter if we don't have an offer head office. Our comrades in the UK need this more than we do. Let's give the money to their strike fund. Um, and this is part of the reason why I think the, the COB it continues to be important. Um, because it is historically one of the strongest Trotskyist movements in the world, it does have these like amazing tidbits of like international solidarity. Um, and it is a route in for um, leftists around the world to grapple with what is a really complicated set of social movements and kind of like social terrain in Bolivia to have this, well, there is this labor movement it is really important. Here's why it's really important. Um, and I think that will continue whether it has structural power or not. So you said, you said though, that you don't, you're not sure that you really see a, a path for gaining stronger structural power for the cop? Not unless you have a radical overhaul of their entire economy. And I don't see that happening either. Um, because you, 
from what I see is the majority of the working classes will continue to be informalized and work in services or commerce. Um, I don't see kind of any any kind of route forward the way their insertion into the global economy as a producer of primary commodities has only deepened under Eva Morales. Um, and even though you have a better educated um, working class, there there isn't the the capacity to to produce jobs. Um, and I don't see the type of jobs as you um, as David mentioned, like the the industrial sector in Bolivia is basically like foodstuffs yeah. and some light industry. They try to make like polypolyene like pellets which is like the plastic but in terms of like where they're going to fit into kind of manufacturing i don't see them being able to kind of increase their manufacturing base and in terms of services i don't see them building a formal formalized service sector which has any ability to have structural power because most of their informal services and commerce well, the services are the least domestically orientated. The commerce is more interesting because it's at the center of a region-wide distribution of goods, um, which is part of the survival strategy of the working classes, but it also means that social reproduction in Latin America can happen. So if you didn't have people importing cheap goods from China through these really informal channels or secondhand goods from the United States, then you would have large kind of a political um, cauldron because nobody could survive. So it's this really interesting kind of like uh, subsidy or subsidizing kind of cheap price of labor in Latin America through these networks. Um, but again, like I, I don't see this changing anytime soon. Um, and I don't see this changing with the government of Luis Arce, even though Arce is ex-finance minister of, Morales, he, he assumes office in a couple of days. Um, but if we're talking about whether it's going to be a change of direction that will lead to a complete overhaul of the country's economy, I, I just don't see it. So that that kind of leads me to the question. You, I mean, that you answered the part about the industrialization, and that leads me to the question that I always struggle with, especially in South America. What we've seen in Mexico. Uh, in America for the past uh, since the 80s with uh, NAFTA and CAFTA and things like this, opening up free trade. Uh, you know, and, and, and in the U.S., it's always under the guise of we're going to help these people establish a more industrialized society when, in fact, what we see is uh, a highly exploitative ultra-capitalist system of where these extremely rich companies move into uh, and buy cheap, almost free land uh, and exploit the people just is, to me, what's from what I see is sickening. So from your perspective, you've been on the ground there. Uh, what, what, is your, what is your opinion of, of this? Because we get on the, on the neoliberal side, even the the Democrats, which we we consider fairly liberal uh, people in the U.S., have a lot of times have a very 
uh, lofty uh, idea that this is helping these people. And I, I don't see it that way. Neither do I. Um, I agree that for free trade in, in Latin America has led, it led to the lost decade in the 1980s and 1990s. And quite often these agreements led to the um, maquiladores that you were mentioning before, where you have uh, industrialization, but industrialization for whom? So you have factory plants that are set up in order to exploit cheap labor, where particular localities are inserted into global commodity chains as a particularly node because it has cheap labor. Yeah. The really interesting thing at the moment is, is that particularly South America, and I know more about South America than Central America, um, is that you have um, the continent is, yes, it's a massive source of natural resources. Um, so foodstuffs, agro-industry, agri kind of um, beef, wine, soya in particular, um, or minerals, gold, and hydrocarbons. But other than that, it's not really because of um, shifting kind of global labor, um, global production regimes, where you start to see an orientation towards China. Um, Latin America is not really kind of linked into these kind of sprawling production networks. Or at least South America isn't. Uh, and the industrial processes you see in, in South America are much more like production in Argentina and Brazil and Chile for other parts of South America. Not the kind of like Southeast Asian Chinese model where kind of like that's being exported to the rest of the world. And I think this is interesting. Um, and I say it's interesting because I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing um, in the sense that it could offer a political opportunity um, because neoliberal governments just don't have an answer to what's going on in Latin America at the moment. And in my opinion, Latin America is um, currently in the wash of the 2008 crisis, which hit the region in 2013 with the fall of commodity prices. Um, and you have these countries where maybe not in terms of their GDP um, proportions but in terms of like where surplus is produced surplus is produced by export orientated um, primary commodity extraction um, and because the price has been historically low it's been really difficult for the states in order to maintain fiscal balance um, and there's no political will for austerity and so you start to see a fracturing of alliances between state and capital and kind of increasing kickbacks uh, against austerity or against rise in public services um, yeah. in other parts of Latin America. So Brazil 2013, the spark for the crisis that led to the fall of Dilma was a rise in bus fares. In Chile, the same, the rise of the uh, subte fares were like the spark that start the, the cycle of crisis in October 2019. Um, so I think there's this moment of opportunity because you don't have the region inserted into global commodity chains or the production networks in the same way that there is this, this opening because neoliberal governments don't have an answer. These, these strategies won't work. 
because in order for them to work, you need to understand how global production has been shaped by geopolitics over the past 20 years and the rise of China. Um, you still have the problem of resource extraction and the fact that lots of lots of Latin America, lots of South America in particular, is inserted are in, is inserted into this chain as a, a source of basically cheap resources. Um, but there is a political opportunity there. Um, and I think that too much of um, the debate amongst particular circles have concentrated on the end of the progressive cycle or the end of governments like Evo Morales's um, and the rise of the far kind of far right or neoliberal regimes. And not enough focus has been done of where are the where are the moments of opportunity, the possibilities, the fact that Latin America has is going through another lost decade. Um, and it doesn't have the same kind of pathways or stages of industrialization that you see elsewhere in the world. And I don't necessarily think this is a bad thing. I think that this is an opportunity yeah. to do something different. And I think we should be looking um, at Latin America, somewhere which has shown us in the past 20 years that it is willing to try to do something different. And somewhere that actually maybe because it, of this kind of um lesser kind of industrial position within the global economy it might be a, yeah a place of hope yeah that's kind of the way i was what i was taking away from it is it sounds like a beautiful opportunity uh for the people there not to be exploited and to take control have a more autonomous uh government and I, what you're what you what you're saying sounds like hope there yeah, I, I think you have to have a little bit of hope. Um, otherwise, what's the point? Um, and I think that there will be real opportunities um, in that the rise of China is something that has become very palpable over the past five years, almost intensified by the pandemic. I have been surprised that no one's writing about kind of Green New Deal, shift, to, shift of kind of energy landscapes, move from hydrocarbons to um, green energy, which is going to throw up an entire kind of new geopolitical nexus as we stop fighting over oil and, and start fighting over other resources and other forms of getting energy. I think the Chinese have a first stage advantage in this and that the Americans saying that you have to make your own superconductors might just play into their hands. It also means that places like Latin America could all of a sudden see themselves losing their primary source of export revenue and saying, well, actually, kind of, we're going to do something completely different here. Um, and so this happens, the, the, both the move to China and the move away from hydrocarbons is part of this opportunity that I see. Um, and I think that this is going to be shaped by struggles on the ground in Latin America um, and the type of alliances that the working classes can build and labor the labor movement can build with indigenous movements, with other sections of the working poor, um, particularly the kind of like urban working poor landless movements. Um, and I, I think this is going to be really interesting over the next 20, 25 years. I'm going to shut up, Jacob, so you can ask some questions. I'm kind of bogarting the my no, 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 not at all, not at all. I'm, I'm, I'm enjoy, I'm really enjoying it. Uh, I had, I, I was wondering. I, I only had two more questions, I think, and, and, and those were, um, 
I was wondering if we could backtrack just a little bit and talk about maybe some of the um, uh, back into the Morales government, maybe some of, you, you know, we talked about that, um, you know, the labor movements were kind of co-opted and some of their demands were, um, were co-opted and, and uh, fulfilled, but in a kind of half-hearted way. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about the, because my understanding is that those, even the half-heartedness of the uh, of the concessions still produced real material gains uh, for the people of Bolivia. And my understanding is that uh, the people of Bolivia really prospered under the Morales government. Um, and, and I was wondering if you could talk about that and talk about um, how the labor movement saw itself amidst the kind of growing prosperity. Or, if, or you know, again, if, if that's just wrong, then correct me. Um, and then my, my last question is like, what, you know, what can us here in the labor movement in America, in Alabama, um, what can we learn from the labor movement in Bolivia? You know, David and I are both on the, uh, you know, the, the Labor Federation here in North Alabama. I'm the secretary treasurer. He's a delegate. Uh, he's the president of his local. Um, he was the secretary treasurer for the state council of machinists. You know, we, we have a foothold here in, in North Alabama. Um, and, and, you know, so we, we'd like to kind of get a lessons learned and, and, you know, see what your recommendations would be from what's been going on in Bolivia to us. So the, um, so that, that was a lot there, but the, uh, the first one was, you know, the, what were some of the material gains that, that working people had in Bolivia from the concessions of, of the Morales government, and how did the labor movement view, um, view itself in light of those, of those gains for working people? I, th I think it's important to, to stress that, like, I don't think Morales implemented those games half-heartedly. Um, I think more it was kind of a technocratic implementation of demands. Um, that, as you said, did have real material gains. I mean, renegotiating the hydrocarbons contract did mean that the state all of a sudden had more money than it's ever had in its history in order to spend on infrastructure projects. Um, so high, there are now highways between all the major cities. Electrification improved. Um, water and gas provision in, in the cities improved. Um, you saw rising kind of minimum wage, um, which is really important for particularly formalized working classes, which increased kind of, yeah, from about 500 Bolivianos a month, which is ooh, about just $150 a month to over 2000. Which, wow. Yeah, so a fourfold increase over 10 years. Um, was that mainly from the hydrocarbon exportation? Yeah, the, the state had an official policy which um, increased the, the um, minimum wage. And what that had, it had a knock-on effect on um, wages in the informal sector because um, aggregate demand went up. And so the amount of money flowing through the economy um, so what hydrocarbons rent did was basically um, kind of heat up the effective demand and mean that people working in informal services and commerce all of a sudden had more customers and so made more money, better access to credit. 
So on, if we're talking about kind of like uh, on, along capitalist lines, things did really improve. Um, the problem was is that it, it wasn't the radical project that people hoped it would be. And it wasn't the radical project that movements asked for. And it was replete with all kinds of contradictions, um, principally the contradiction between having a resource-led development model um, which exposes you to the ups and downs of global commodity prices, um, which they learned to their peril um, when global commodity prices collapse come 2013, 2014. But it also pits the mass government against certain sections of the indigenous movement who they are supposedly representing. So Evo Morales was positioned himself as the first indigenous president of Bolivia. And it's a real problem if you have an indigenous president who represents all indigenous peoples all of a sudden fighting indigenous peoples. Um, and it starts to undermine the legitimacy and undermine the political project of the mass. Um, and this is, these contradictions are some of the central contradictions that lead to the context where you have the, the coup d'etat um, last year. And so I think this is, it's important to recognize that there were important material gains for lots of people um, in kind of measurable um, indicators, but that it, firstly, there was this moment, this opportunity lost. And secondly, this development model was unsustainable over the medium term. Um, and so I think we have to look at Evo Morales' government as far from being faultless in what happened last year um, and kind of suffering from a number of shortcomings that part of them are symptomatic of trying to run a socialist product inside a liberal state. Um, part of it is to do with the peripheral position of Bolivia within the capitalist global economy. Um, but also part of it is to do with the political projects and the decisions made by the mass government. Um, and so we can't absolve Morales of, of the mistakes that he did definitely make. And I think this leads on to your second question nicely, because there are some really important lessons for, for, for the labor movement to learn from, from Bolivia. Um, firstly, uh, alliances matter. Uh, and building alliances beyond the labor movement are the way and repositioning yourself in a changing world can be really, really powerful. So looking at the U.S. conjecture now, how, how are labor movements involved with Black Lives Matter, um, which is the kind of movement which has the most radical potential um, in the country and has the opportunity to kind of like really throw things wide open. Um, and it's not to say that labor movements are going to be the drivers of that process, they're not. It's just how can you be good allies? How can you position yourselves in such a way that you start to build connections between these problems which seem disparate, um, but are actually kind of really interconnected? And we can see this by, by people talking about kind of ab abolish the police is a great example of how people have started to, to kind of like draw the threads of systemic racism policing and racial capital, um, capitalism. And I think this is really, really powerful and a, a site of like, potential kind of opportunity for the, for the US labor movement. Um, second lesson, I think is more to do with how should labor movements 
position themselves vis-a-vis sympathetic governments. Um, And I think this is kind of um, appropriate to say, given that there are elections in the US currently underway. Um, And I think that the strategy of um, movements, yeah, you have to change whether it's um, Trump or Biden, but when Biden gets into power, you need and you need to to keep some critical distance from the government. You need to maintain your leadership vis-a-vis basis, um, and this means that doing the organising work that's the bread and butter of labour movements, drawing people in, building building something which is long-lasting, where you have a proper organisational structure that can mobilise over certain issues, is going to be the key. Um, because governments have to respond to lots of different groups at once. They're going to be put in positions where they're going to make difficult decisions, and the labor movement needs to position itself as one of these countervailing forces to say, hang on a minute, like this is bad for this section of the U.S. working classes, or this is an act of U.S. imperialism, you should not do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that keeping this critical distance is is something that um, labor movements should always bear in mind. So even if you have an opportunity to enter into alliance or, or cozy up or build kind of more um, formal bridges with, with the government, you still need to, to position yourself critically and to keep the channels of communication transparent and open with your rank and file. So the rank and file knows exactly who you're speaking to in government, what you're saying to them, and, and how you're positioning um, yourselves as their representatives. Yep. Right. I think the a, a couple things that I wanted to, to tease out there in your answer, and I really appreciated that, was the transparent and democratic communications between labor leaders and, and government officials. I think that's incredibly important, and I think... Uh, Circling back to something that you said earlier in the interview, you said that um, all of your friends in the labor movement uh, in Bolivia were canned, basically, for being dissident voices against the mass. And but these are the people that had strong social support or, or strong support among the base of workers. And so, what I gather from that is that these unions and and you said it. I you know I didn't gather it. You said it. They're very hierarchical and they're not necessarily. Um, they're not as democratic as, as one would hope. And, and if they were democratic, these people would not have been kicked out. These people would not have been expelled because they had bases of support. And so I think this is something that, that we see lots of uh, good labor organizers advocating is increasing democracy and transparency within our unions where it can be, uh, where that can be done. And I think that's very important. And the second is the maintaining the critical distance. Um, yeah. You mentioned, like, uh, you know, the labor movement kind of became like a headless organization because they, they, uh, their leaders went into positions with the government. And I'm, I, you know, uh, I'm kind of agnostic on whether or not that's a good thing. It sounds like it's really not. But, you know, ideally you would have more than one leader that could lead the base. Like if, but, you know, I, I'm seeing, especially today, I'm seeing lots of unions, lots of labor federations saying things that, in all honesty, are just silly about Joe Biden, you know, 
like really, really silly things. Uh, uncritical support for Joe Biden. And I, you know, I voted for Joe Biden today. Uh, mm. I believe David did a while ago, but like, you know, <laughs> it, the support is critical. <laughs> well, I mean, what choice did we have? Right. You right. know, there was no choice. There, there's a difference be between kind of um, not go going out there and canning Biden and saying don't vote for Biden or doing things which undermines him in a strategically like silly way. So if you're a, if you're a labor movement coming out today and saying I support Biden, vote Biden today, um, is different from being like Biden is the best thing. He's greatest for the labor movement. You should, right. you should definitely vote for him because he's our guy. And I think the two things are slightly different. Uh, and I think what's important to, to recognize is like, you need a, a strategy which comes bottom up rather than top down. And this is what you start to see in Bolivia and David Morales is that it's not that the, the unions aren't democratic. It's just that there are moments in time where the democracy falls apart because it's either the union democracy or their relationship with the government and they decide to go with their relationship with the government and all of the stuff which is kind of keeping their relationship with their rank and file a healthy relationship um, falls apart and uh, so and it's really interesting because uh, I, I find that well, these friends were really critical of Morris but the first people who I saw being like yeah it was a coup um, and so it doesn't mean that you can't come out and, and say that you support a, kind of a candidate, but the support is kind of conditional and it's based on a conjecture. And if the, if the time comes when you need to hold that leader to account, you need to be able to quickly and decisively say that this is what we're doing, this is why we're doing it. And come out against that leader in a, in in a position which is going to pit you against that that's that sympathetic um, politician. Right. Yeah. And Unfortunately, you know, what we've seen, you know, my thirty some odd years in the labor movement, from basically the time that I was old enough to work, is we have one party that we supported traditional, not traditionally. I mean, historically, throughout my entire life. You don't have anyone else you can put pressure on because we know the Republican Party. We cannot. There, there are no pressure points for us to put on them. Mm. And so they've developed the relationship out of necessity. But it, it's also, uh, it was kind of like we were. I was on a uh, show last night, and we were talking about one of the organizers was organizing for. Uh, for some, for some actions in the street in case Trump didn't uh, accept the, uh, the election. And the question posed was, well, what happens if he does? And, he, and, and, his, and he, he had the best response of anybody I've heard in years. He said, we still march because we're going to hold the Biden campaign as, uh, you know, to the same standards that we would hold anyone else. And that is what needs to happen in the U.S. and something that has has not happened for years is we think that once we get our candidate that we've we've uh, supported or endorsed in the office, the fight is over. And unfortunately, you know, in leadership positions, it, it has been for them. But 
it, it's ju it should have just begun because uh, we've elected these neoliberal Democrats for the past 40 years that just absolutely decimated uh, the working class in the U.S. and seen stagnant wages, seen offshoring of jobs to, to exploitative uh, countries and things like that. So, yeah, what you're saying as far as keeping an arm's reach, I think it needs to be keep a fist reach and a, you know, a very strong grasp on their, yeah, a stick of dynamite or a strong grasp on their throat to let them, to remind them of who put them in office. And, you know, and I think it's really, un, like, I think the fact that you see all of these just uncritical support for, for Biden or for other Democrats like Biden uh, saying, oh, he's the best guy, you know, like, I'm not at all opposed. And that has been my message that, you know, Biden is like who we should vote for because he's going to he's going to be better for like working people than Trump. But like, that's it. Like, I, you know, I'm not saying that he's the best guy. And, and uh, but but there there are unions and labor federations out there that are doing that. And I think like what I would figure the thinking there is that, oh, well, if we have critical support, like people won't understand or it won't mobilize people out to vote. And I think that's just so disrespectful to our members and to the intelligence of our members because they lived through Obama. They lived through Clinton. And if we have our leadership up here telling us Joe Biden is going to usher in a worker's paradise if we just elect him, I mean, it's like it's it's really it, it's really disrespectful in, in my view and undemocratic and, and, and all sorts of things. Um, yeah, well, and it's one of the reasons why you've seen such a drastic drop in union worker support of union endorsed politicians, because over the past 40 years, they've recognized that these politicians that they have endorsed has, have been detrimental to their to their family's income. And so it's it's very apparent why you why I have sixty percent Republican uh, voting membership because they're sick and tired of listening to the unions endorse candidates that they won't hold uh, hold hold the task. Yeah. Angus, do you have any uh, closing thoughts? I've I've really enjoyed the interview. I think there those were some uh, really good takeaways for the labor movement here in America and in Alabama. Um, uh, did, did, did you have any, any closing thoughts for us, for the audience? Just thanks for having me on. It's been a real pleasure to speak to you guys. Um, and it's really nice to be able to speak across contexts. Um, Bolivia's labor movement is fascinating. Yeah. They have a long inspirational history that is often overlooked um, and so it's really good to, to visit this and particularly in a pertinent political moment I feel like there, there are so many resonances and lessons that can be learned from what we've been talking about so thank you both for, for having me um, and best of luck with your organizing yeah thank you thanks so much